He's controversial. 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, he's outspoken. You will tell your kids, and your grandkids, and your great, great grandkids. And he tells it like it is. That you watched a great athlete named the franchise, and he was the greatest world heavyweight champion of all time. He is the franchise Shane Douglas, and you are listening to the Triple Threat Podcast. Prepare to get your ass franchised. Get it rolling. You're goddamn right. That's right. Let's get it rolling right here, right now. This is the Triple Threat Podcast, number 54 of this great Triple Threat Podcast, coming to you here live on the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcasting platform. If you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and as always on the two-man power trip, I'm joined by my tag team partner, the one and only John Paz. On this show, we know him as the lovable JP. And also on this show, we're talking to a key player, the co-host on this Great Triple Threat podcast, a guy who has a lot to say about tonight's topic. He is the one and only franchise Shane Douglas. Shane, welcome to episode number 54. Oh, I love that guy. The franchise, he's cool as hell. I love that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Can you believe it? I mean, you know... Soared right past the one-year mark of the big episode with uh, Franny, and now on episode 54, I mean, this thing just keeps rolling right along and chugging right along, and 
from if the feedback I got this past week is any indicator, uh, the fans are loving what they're getting. So thank you to the fans, and let's keep it going. Yeah, absolutely. And Shane, for this episode where we're going to be focusing on ECW CyberSlam 96 and Brian Effin Pillman, what I did was I strapped on my favorite flannel, wrapped it around my waist, I put my arms out wide, I'm ready to talk about my favorite ECW <laughs> superstar of all time, Raven. Are you ready to talk about CyberSlam tonight? <laughs> You're damn right I am. I love reminiscing and takes us back to that good stuff. And the reason we still hear fans today chanting ECW. That's right. And just before we get into the meat of this episode, we did some crack research. We got all the background on this event, all the match results, all the little ins and outs to kind of pick the brain of the franchise here. But before we get going into that, we got to talk about Shane's weekend in Knoxville this past weekend. Reuniting with Francine, as you heard a couple weeks back as we were promoting the fanboy convention in Knoxville. Shane, the response on social media was unreal as I was just casually scrolling through Facebook, seeing your pictures pop up on a few of the dirt sheet sites. It was an unbelievable response, but I'd love to hear what your takeaway is from that uh, great reunion with Francine down there in Knoxville. Well, keep in mind, this is the first time that Franny and I uh, appeared together since 2007, so 11 plus years. It's been quite a while. And, you know, for me, I've was trying to think back at it. I knew 2007 we'd appear together, but I was surprised that we hadn't done so since. And, you know, when you start working through that and realizing how fast time flies by, but, you know, we had a phenomenal time. This past weekend to me was like getting in a time machine and going back to 1996, 97. Uh, it, it, was like, it was seamless. Like we picked right up where we'd left off and, you know, we laughed, the two of us laughed the entire time we were there and got a great response from the fans that knew we were there. And, and the reason I state that is this. Uh, the Fanboy Expo, for some inane reason, only advertised on their site the people that were brought there through Fanboy Expo. Now, before anybody out there says, well, that makes perfect sense because, let me hear me out. Uh, the fans, Knoxville, first of all, let's start with the premise. Knoxville is a huge wrestling area, has been throughout my entire career. Uh, Knoxville has a huge history in professional wrestling. Uh, and uh, we, we would see, you know, the fans walking by and they would stop and like do a double take and then come over. And we did a sort of informal poll as they were coming through. And the fans saying uh, nine out of 10 saying that they didn't know we were there and were shocked when they saw us, but were thrilled that they, that they did. Now we were swamped the entire time we were there. We had you know, a really great turnout, but for these expos that do this and these conventions, uh, if you have Joe Blow that was on a move in a movie or on a TV series or a wrestler or whatever, back in the 80s or 90s, you're a fool not to advertise that person because how many people, in, in this case, in Oxville area, would have come to see, and it wasn't just me and Francine, uh, Ricky Steamboat was there, Tim Horner from White Lightning with Brad Armstrong was there, uh, Dr. Tom Pritchard, who everybody in wrestling loves. Uh, there were quite a few guys from the wrestling business alone, forget about 
from TV series and movies and music that were there that weren't advertised. There were quite a few people from all those different genres that were not advertised. And I've got to believe that in the Knoxville area, there would have been more than one or two people that would have loved to come had they known that Ricky the Dragon Steamboat was there, or the franchise on Francine, or Dr. Tom Pritchard, or uh, uh, Tim Warner, or the litany of the other people that, that were not listed. Just seems to me to be a very silly thing, considering I believe, and don't hold me to this, but I believe it was, I heard $22 to get in, and then I heard $25 to get in. So I'm trying to ascertain and balance out in my brain as to why the, this convention, and they're not the only ones that do this, but why they wouldn't want to advertise every single name that they have on that show, regardless of genre. Uh, it just stands the reason. Uh, and when you look at it from the standpoint, this isn't, this isn't a plug for like me and Francine or any of the wrestlers. It's a plug for the fans in that area. Uh, you know, if you have an ECW fan, and I'm sure there are quite a few in the Knoxville area. Uh, how many of them would have come? How many of them did nothing on Friday or Saturday night and would have had the opportunity? So uh, as I've been doing on Twitter and Francine's been doing and many fans have been doing on Twitter, uh, at Fanboy Expo needs to know from the fans that this just ain't cool. It's a stupid thing from a business standpoint. And it ain't cool to the fans that you claim to be uh, uh, serving from a, from a standpoint of providing an expo. Now, that said, the expo was fantastic. Uh, the fans in Knoxville, as I would have expected, were fantastic. Uh, they all knew exactly what they were talking about. They all had the history of wrestling down and were keenly aware of what everybody that was not advertised and those that were advertised brought to the table. So uh, just from speaking from a wrestling perspective, I think the fans in Knoxville that knew about it and got a chance to come had a great weekend, as we did. Like I said, you know, Francine and I sat and laughed our asses off all weekend long and had a great time uh, meeting the fans, just telling old stories and cutting up and, uh, just generally hanging out, and it will not be the last time that Francine and I are appearing. Uh, you know, that was just the first. So, like I was talking about on Twitter today, uh, if somebody wants to advertise or, I mean, uh, book Francine and I, uh, we've had several inquiries already since the weekend. But if anybody is interested in bringing Francine and I into their event or promotion or convention or expo, uh, they can obviously hit up ShaneDouglasBooking at gmail.com or now let me make sure I get this right. Francine ECW inquiries at gmail.com. Francine ECW inquiries at, at gmail.com. So uh, we've already gotten several bookings over the last week or so. Uh, a few have come in since the uh, Knoxville convention. And uh, if it's something that you're interested in doing, uh, hit us up at one of those sites, franchise, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Shane Douglas booking at gmail.com or Francine ECW inquiries, uh, at gmail.com. So had a great time. The pictures told a thousand words. I mean, it was so cool. You could see on both of your faces, just how enjoyable the, the whole entire event was. 
just getting to see the pictures that fans are posting and you guys are retweeting and interacting with. Uh, that personal touch that you guys gave, was you could tell it was evident. Um, but also, you know, one thing that I saw a lot of comments from fans too is they just couldn't get over how great both of you guys looked. And Shane, I mean, look, we, we love you to death. And I could, I could just see in your face how, you know, how happy you were to be there and, and you guys looked great. Yeah. And the posing for pictures, it was all very natural. And I'm sure when it comes to the wrestling business, to have people who are happy to be in one place and to enjoy each other's company, I'm sure that is, can be a rare thing. But obviously you two picked up right where you left off. Well, thank you. I, you know, for me, I, the fans have heard me now for 54 weeks talk about this. Uh, the fact that, you know, we, we all heard Francine's stories, and it's very similar to mine from the WWF, WWE, whatever the hell they call it today. Uh, the fact that we have been able to amass that kind of a following and have that kind of verb with the fans that followed us and, and loved DCW and, uh, you know, loved or hated what we did. And, and I'll explain, you know, about 30% of the fans would come to the table and say, Hey, just want to let you know, I hated your guys, you guys guts whenever you, <laughs> you know, which is exactly what a heel wants to hear. Um, it really was like stepping back in time. Uh, the fact that that many fans got it, understood it, respected it, and loved it, for us was, you know, like pigs and shit. I mean, we had a great time, and I'm glad that it, it comes through in the pictures because even as much as it comes through in the pictures, I, I don't believe it can convey as much fun as we were having together and as much fun as we were have, having meeting the fans. Uh, it really was a great time, a great, great weekend. I had a shitload of fun. Hey, and this one, uh, this question's for John. Hey, John, if uh, Shane and Francine are starting to do a lot of these uh, convention appearances together, you know what that means, right? Um, hmm. What could that mean? Could that mean a possible triple threat reunion of some sort? Is that what you think? No, no. I'm saying that this this could lead to Francine having to come back on the show to promote stuff. I mean, that's that's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at the grand <laughs> scheme of things here. Oh, I was I was trying to think of of a of a triple threat that was was almost reforming. There, I was just trying to think of some uh, <laughs> some guys that could reform it with Shane and having uh, Francine as a manager. That's that's what was going through my head. That's what I was thinking about. Well, so far, it seems to me that uh, there are only two openings in in the uh, triple threat. You know, of course, Francine and I, and like I said, got the band back together. Uh, but two other spots, and so far you guys have been interviewing for 54 weeks now. So, you know, we've been looking over the resumes and, you know, checking things out. And it seems to me that, like, there's, you guys got some, like, you know, some bragging rights on this thing. So I, I don't know. <laughs> Let's check with Francine and, and get her take on things. But no, no, no other triple threats coming down the line. Uh, yeah. It is what it is. It was what it was and left the mark that it did that we're proud of. But as far as I'm concerned, you two guys have the inside lane on if there's going to be another triple threat announced. <laughs> well, one guy saved uh, saved you in one match here uh, fairly recently. So uh, I think I got a little bit more to prove. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, yeah, yeah, I didn't want to bring it up. But, you know, you, <laughs> yeah, you, 
we may have to roll you out at some point and you know just prove your stripes and your metal and uh and see but so far for two reasons not just saving my ass in that match with luke hawks but the fact that he found my keys in his car before he drove home <laughs> i would have woken uh, woke up on sunday morning to drive home with no keys it would have been in a panic so you know so far jp's got like his resume's got the double stamp on it i mean he's, he's got the uh, between the two of you, he's got the inside track, so you might have to try a little harder there, Chadster. Hey, like I said, I'll, um, I'm breaking out my uh, my classic 90s flannel. I'm tying it around my waist for this episode, and I'm ready to talk about Raven versus the Sandman right now, so let's uh, let's talk about it now. But let's seriously get into this uh, episode. The, uh, the, the reason we're all here is to talk about ECW CyberSlam 96, actually pre-Francine. Uh, franchise action that we're going to be discussing uh, in here yeah. in this ECW. It's going to be taking place February 17th, 1996, a mere few weeks after you returned to ECW after your six-plus months there in the WWF. Obviously, the whole Dean Douglas run, we've talked about that a lot. I'm sure we'll talk about it again in the future. But here, we're going to be talking about this great event of CyberSlam 96. A lot of ins and outs, a lot of things that happened, a lot of cool things that developed. But Shane, when you think about the grand pantheon of time and ECW and all the great events, where does this kind of rank in your memory in terms of those earlier ECW shows? Because obviously you just came back and maybe it was more of a feeling out process for you and the fans now, uh, maybe having to win over a little bit of their trust again. But on the surface, what are some of your memories of this CyberSlam 96 event? Well, there's so many because of Brian, uh, but beyond that, uh, when I first came back, uh, for about the first six or seven months that I was back from the WWF, uh, Paul Heyman was very reticent to talk to me. Uh, and, and I knew what he was doing, uh, you know, and I was fine with that. I was just happy to be back in ECW. Uh, so, you know, and, and looking at that, from that perspective, you know, here I am with a guy who had put a lot of stock in me. I understand his his feelings for me having left, but you know how anybody could blame anybody for wanting to go for a bigger paycheck in this business, especially somebody that knows the business and knows that there's a small window to make that money in. Uh, but once I came back, there were, there were, first of all, there were some huge differences to ECW. Paul had expanded ECW with the advent of like the Dudleys, for instance. Uh, you know, my first gleaning of the, the Dudleys was that, you know, just looking at them, here's a couple of guys, one's black, one's white, wearing glasses that are obviously not real glasses. Uh, and, calling themselves brothers and, you know, tie-dyed, colorful, almost cartoonish looking. It, it seemed to me to be antithetical to what ECW had been until I watched them work. And once I watched them work, I, you know, I thought to myself, you know, Paul's got the bigger vision in his, in his brain. And he's, he's looking beyond what platform we had created, what base we had created. Uh, and then we were going into the, you know, this is now the era, the advent of the uh, pay-per-view era for ECW. 
stuff that when I had left was a pipe dream. You know, we couldn't imagine when I left to go to WWF that ECW would at one time very soon be on pay-per-view. For us, that was the Nirvana. That was the promised land. And that we could be on there and showing not just the audience in Philadelphia and the few audiences that were watching around the, the, the very specific points around the country at 1, 2, 3 a.m., suddenly we were available to a much mass, much wider audience. And that was a game changer for ECW because now it was no longer you have to wait until you know this wee hour of the morning or uh, uh, you know wait to see if whether or not you are on a specific system like the Madison Square Garden Network or the Sunshine Network. Suddenly we were available now to the masses. And, you know, it was a huge game changer. And then the fact that we were able to get from the quote unquote larger companies, uh, incredible talent like Brian Pillman to come in for those and the way that he came in that we'll get into here shortly, uh, really underscored what ECW was all about. You know, you know, Taz coined the phrase, fuck the world later, FTW. Uh, but. ECW really was the company that was the counterculture. You know, we were the hippies in the midst of the, the mainstream. And, you know, now suddenly we're available on pay-per-view to audiences near and wide that if they wanted to watch us, they could watch us at this time, 7 p.m. or whatever the time the, the pay-per-view aired. It truly was a game changer, but it wasn't lost on the the dressing room either and, I, and i'll get to that a little bit later but it was not lost in the dressing room and the importance of that uh, of those pay-per-views in the uh in the dressing room this is actually if you fans want to remember back to how ecw sculpted their shows and how they aired them this specific show was aired over five uh excuse me one two three episodes of hardcore tv between february and the beginning of march and that's how ECW did the shows. They, they built them over a few weeks of hardcore TV, and then they'd start to advertise for the commercial release uh, on ECW Home Video. So this was par uh, part of it where I, I want to work it into is that this was so ahead of the curve, Shane. And I know you know this is one of ECW's uh, annual internet conventions. And that's what CyberSlam was all about, was embracing the early days of the internet. You guys were doing Q&As. You guys were trying to stream stuff. You were really ahead of the internet boom of professional wrestling because in early 96 we're talking like i've got uh you know early aol days um you know uh i'm trying to think of what's the john what's the one that you had um that wcw used to use what was the name of that uh internet hosting CompuServe. CompuServe. so it's in the early days of internet streaming where that's where Paul was trying to gear these Cyber Slam shows. Do, do you remember the inclusion of the early stages of what the internet was and how pro wrestling would be uh, kind of presented on it? Well, I, re I remember very well. You know, the, first of all, kudos to Bob uh, uh, Bob Ryder. You know that he was at those shows at, at the earliest shows of ECW uh, stuff. You know, to, to a guy like me that had come up with the business like I did, and 
to see a guy sitting up in the Eagles nest, um, you know, typing out the matches at move by move as they happen, you know, it just seemed to me to be, you know, like beam me up Scotty Star Trek. I mean, this was a lightsaber, you know, being beamed up in a transporter on the enterprise. It, it, it didn't quite make sense to me at that time. I knew in general what Bob was doing and what, you know, what the whole, you know, uh, uh, mechanics were, uh, of what he was doing. But, you know, again, for a guy like me that had to, you know, come up in the business where you had to wrestle in the match, somebody had to record it, then edit it, and then, you know, put it onto a final tape and send it out to, you know, through the distribution center to all the, the, the uh, stations that were aligned. Uh, this was really, you know, game-changing stuff, stuff that was so far beyond what we were familiar with. And then, you know, seeing how Paul really embraced it, you know, like when he, when he named it Cyber Slam, uh, you know, I, I sort of knew what he was talking about, but I just figured it was just because in general, computers are taking off and, uh, you know, it's like the wave of the future type of thing. Uh, it, you know, looking back now from where we sit today, looking back and calling it that in 96, really was on the cutting edge of all that the internet was going to become. And, you know, and, and then to see what he was doing on the show from a booking perspective uh, really underscores all of that times 10. Uh, he, you know, Paul Heyman, <laughs> and we'll underscore a certain word in this, is an idiot savant, uh, that <laughs> he was able to understand that in in the terms that he did and be that visionary shows how far ahead of the curve that he really was uh meanwhile the show itself is going to be reflective of the ecw that's been around since 93 perhaps ramped up in in several ways but all of those pay-per-views were truly for us it was like you know christian getting to heaven this is exactly what we needed to, to take this company forward, move it to the next level. And, uh, you know, Cyber Slam, much like Barely Legal and, 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 and the other pay-per-views that ECW had done before and after that were really, how do I say this? Uh, if you go back and you watch those pay-per-views, either in order or not, they're, they, they're very reminiscent of the company at the, that moment in time. And when you go back and watch them, I would dare say that they stand up very strongly to today. If, if somebody turned that on, if, if you'd been in a coma for the last 25 years and woke up today and somebody put that in and said, hey, let's watch a pay-per-view tonight, you wouldn't watch and think, boy, this is dated. This must be from the 90s. Uh, it, it stands up the test of time. And that's a testament both to Paul Hammond's booking and to all of the talent that was on the card uh, as, as to what we were trying to present. And Paul built these up huge. I mean, he really invested big time in the promotion of the CyberSlam shows because he would go back and promote them years later to continue to push the CyberSlam brand in ECW, and they would continue CyberSlams through the year 2000. Uh, but to me, I always think about the conventions that you guys did and the Q&As and, like, 
just seeing that curtain peeled back in 1996 and even in 95 when they did these Q&As, unbelievable stuff to learn at that point in the pantheon yeah. of the business because we didn't know this stuff. I mean, yes, you could get your hands on a newsletter and yes, you could kind of sift through some of the kayfabe stories in, in the uh, the after mags and, you know, maybe piece stuff together. But you guys were legit doing conventions and Q&As and peeling the curtain back. And this is where we found out about maybe some ill feelings towards uh, a Connecticut based wrestling promotion, or we could hear, <laughs> you know, we could hear some of the uncensored thoughts about Eric Bischoff and WCW at that point. We didn't know about any of that stuff, but that right. in itself, that's what ECW is all about. And, and these cyber slam conventions and Q and A's and these shows. And obviously Brian Pillman's inclusion in on this show really was, and this is why it's my, you know, make it about myself here being very selfish. This is my personal favorite time in ECW because it was so different. And this is where I would pinpoint to somebody and say, go back and watch the guys on the show. Now, Rob Van Dam had just debuted um, when you returned. Mm -hmm. The night you came back was Rob Van Dam's ECW debut. But like you said, now the the Dudleys were there. And obviously Raven and Sandman were trading the world title and Tommy Dreamer, obviously, and Too Cold and Sabu and yourself and and all the great names and and the Pitbulls, the Eliminators. These were the guys that drew me to ECW uh, in that point in 95, 96. And when we can talk about this, I'm so tickled pink. So to dial it back, we also want to mention who, of course, is the only voice you hear over these matches, and that is the great Joey Styles, and every time we do a dedication show to a topic like this, we got to put over Joey Styles, and Shane, we've said a million times, quite possibly the greatest one-man booth guy in the history of professional wrestling, and I will put him over a Gordon Soley or anybody else, because Joey made you feel as if every move, punch, kick, slap counted, and again on CyberSlam 96, his inclusion in the ring with Brian Pillman puts it over yet again. Well, you know, look, everybody knows how I feel about Joey Styles, but I, I make a couple points here. Um, first of all, I couldn't say it any better than you just did, but from a personal standpoint, uh, I had been around and worked with the quote-unquote greatest announcers in wrestling history. You know, I had been around the Gordon Sullys, the Lance Russells, the Jim Rosses, uh, you know, just go right down the list. I would worked with all of them, prior to ECW, I had never once seen any of them do what I saw Joey Styles doing in ECW. Uh, he would come to the dressing room before the show, and, you know, he's hanging out like one of the guys, and most one of the guys. And he would say, uh, hey, Taz, I, you know, that, that finishing move you have, you know, blah, blah. And he would sit there and talk it out, and they would kick ideas around as to what they were going to call it, how do they, you know, how to lead into it and come out of it. How strongly should Joey put it over? Uh, he really did his homework. It wasn't like he just went to the booth and sat down and said, okay, I'm going to call the show like I see it. Uh, when All of these shows, when you see Joey Styles and you listen to what he's calling, that was after hours and hours and hours in the dressing room, talking to the guys, uh, going over the things, and in several cases, coming up with names for the moves. Uh, that was Joey Styles. And then the fact that, at that by that time, wrestling clearly had become, after Jesse the Body Ventura, Gorilla Monsoon, Bobby Heenan, had become, you know, a, a commentator, color commentator type of genre. 
somebody to bounce something off of. Joey Styles did not have that luxury. He didn't have the luxury of sitting up there and saying, boy, I'm running out of things to say. Can somebody take over for a second or two so I can recollect my thoughts? And that, to me, is the separate. Again, taking nothing away from any of the guys I mentioned, I've got uber respect for all of them. And, you know, can put them all over and what they brought and what to the table and what they meant to that product. But Joey Styles was something different. A, ECW was completely different than anything American wrestling fans had seen previously. That's the first thing. You start with the premise of that. Then, second premise being that the vast majority, except for Terry Funk, of the talent on the card were guys that were at best mid-carders previously at ECW, and in many cases didn't even get that chance in American wrestling. Like you know, I, I coined the phrase "the island of misfit toys." Shane Douglas was a mid- middle of the card white bee baby face. Taz wasn't uh, tall enough. Sabu wasn't big enough. Raven didn't have it. Uh, and the other guys, Tommy Dreamer, Sandman, uh, you know, right down the list, they'd never been seen before. So this really, truly was an experiment out there on a limb. Uh, what if Shane Douglas shit the bed? And, and, and confirmed that he's nothing more than a middle-of-the-card white-meat babyface. What if Sabu wasn't as explosive, homicidal, suicidal, genocidal as he was? What if Taz didn't have that intensity that he had? You know, all these big ifs that Joey Styles had to not only traverse, but had to figure out a way to present to the fans watching at home in a digestible package that they could then walk away from and say, I know Taz is this. I know Shane Douglas is that. Sabu and Raven and Sandman and Tommy Dream and all the rest of them are this. Uh, And you have to credit Joey Styles with that. Uh, Just an incredible talent. Uh, Boggles my my mind when I think that he later went to WWE and after a very short stint as an announcer, was put into their uh, internet side of things, their 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 uh, their uh, e side of things, and was not kept on television as an announcer. Just completely blows my mind. And I don't want to take any shots, and I'm not taking shots at anybody. I'm just stating a fact. Joey Styles is as good as or better than. Everybody that they've had announcing an ECW since the time he was there and after. Uh, I know I'm partial, but Joey Styles was a special talent as a color commentator or as a commentary commentator for wrestling. Prior to when they relaunched ECW and uh, Joey was on Raw for a brief stint, he added to it, and that was while Jim Ross was out for a little while, and uh, he added to it, and it was a shame when they pulled him because he did a, a work promo, a shoot promo, um, you know, kind of venting frustration, say what you will. There's a lot of stories out there about uh, the encounter he had with JBL, so kind of venting some frustration. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the, there was only two, uh, two hits in that fight. <laughs> Joey hitting JBL, JBL hitting the floor. But... Uh, 
he definitely, when he got that chance to, to be on that main stage of WWE, he definitely delivered. But to do these shows solo, it's unbelievable. And it adds so much to it. And to see him work in the ring with the guys uh, doing, whether it's the kickoff, when he would be getting the fans all hyped up, and setting up an angle for the rest of the night. He obviously he played his part uh, very well. But so, including all the Brian Pillman stuff that we're going to get to, you also had a match on the show against Cactus Jack that was built at your return at House Party 96, which was January 5th. Yes. And you cut the infamous promo where you said you wouldn't kiss Vince McMahon's ass, and now you're back. So I guess my question to you would be, politically, coming back to ECW, but obviously being who you were in the company before, did you have to kind of prove yourself again to the locker room uh, now that you had departed and come back? Absolutely, yes. Um, And rightfully so. You know, it's... uh... You know, none of us is gauged by what we did yesterday and what we achieved before. It's, okay, that's good, but what, what did you do before me today? That's not just wrestling. That's in the world. Um, and I knew coming back that, you know, like I mentioned a second ago, I, I come back to a vastly changed ECW, uh, the Eliminators, who I'd never seen before, uh, the Dudleys, who I'd never seen before. You know, there were all these additions. Rob Van Dam, who I had met before and knew from WCW, but I was not fully aware of what Rob was capable of doing because he didn't have that large of a role in WCW. And so I come back having been the top guy, and I'm back in a company with not one or two, but a plethora of unbelievable talents that were there that carve out their piece of that pie. And to be honest with you, I, I sort of enjoyed the challenge. Uh, I didn't want to come back there and be put right in the number one spot and try to, to explain to the fans why I'm back in the number one spot from the day I got back in. Uh, I wanted to work my way back up. I wanted that fire in my belly lit again because after the WWF experience that I had there, I was so turned off in so many ways uh, that I needed something to light a fire under my ass. And I think that's part of what Paul was doing and not talking to me. I also think it was part of it, you know, just Paul being Paul. But I think he realized that me coming back, I had to have that fire lit under my ass again. I couldn't just resort back to the promos I had done before. I couldn't just resort back to being the top guy because I wasn't. And, uh, I remember vividly the first day I was back in the ECW arena. Uh, I got there early, like I always did, and the guys were in the ring working out. And you know, Perry Saturn was one of the guys out there. I went out and was watching, and I climbed into the ring. And you know, and now, now what I'm telling you comes from later conversations with Perry. But you know, Perry asked me to get in the ring with him, and you know, we started working out. And I could tell Perry was, you know semi-shooting, you know, that he was, you know, going for, which very quickly inspired me to do the same thing. And we went around for three, four, five, six minutes. And uh, Perry got up and he shook my hand. He said, I didn't think, you know, I never realized that you were that good of a wrestler. And, you know, I, and from that point forward, the two of us were best friends. Uh, But I enjoyed that. I didn't want to walk right back in there and, hey, I'm back from WWF and get treated like royalty because I wasn't. And 
I, I, like I said, Paul realized, and, and I knew I needed that fire lit under my ass again. And to walk into that dressing room, unlike the dressing room that I had left, you knew damn right well just by watching everybody on the card before you, which was a common theme in ECW. Everybody watched the monitor. Nobody was off just hanging out and doing whatever and nonchalant about it. Everybody watched the monitor. And as I was watching that monitor, I realized I've got up my game because there's some damn good talent here that either I'm going to be able to hang with or I'm going to get flushed out the back door. But that was exactly what I needed, exactly what I was looking for. And I relished, especially now looking back from where I sit today, that I had to do that. I, I didn't want to just walk back in there and be comfortable and step back in, in, into the number one spot. Uh, a, the fans, I don't think, the ECW fans would have bought it. And it would have been disingenuous. And the one thing about ECW, in my heart of hearts, I've always believed and I still believe. Uh, you can say whatever you want about ECW. The one thing you can't say ECW was, if you don't want to look like a fool, was that it was disingenuous, that it was just all a work. And uh, when you saw somebody in a singles or a tag championship position, it was because they belonged there. It wasn't because it was given to them or they read the teleprompter the right way. It was because they belonged in that position. And I firmly, fervently believe that's what made ECW ECW. And it's why you still hear the fans chanting ECW today. Oh, my God. Yeah, absolutely. Still, because uh, now we like we've talked about it at, at great length. You know, you could just go and check it out and you see why people still chant that stuff. Um, but, you know, you come back into the company and obviously you actually just missed Steve Austin. Steve Austin was going to the WWF last performing in ECW in December 95, whereas you came back in January 96, literally right after the new year. But you start your your mini feud here with Cactus Jack. Now, was that something designed to help you get ingratiated back into the mix of having somebody that you knew so well and Mick Foley of somebody you could trust to work with and get the best out of you coming back into ECW? I, I don't believe that was part of it. I think Paul realized what I was capable of doing in the ring. Uh, I think the bigger part of it was that there was a history, a liturgy, to Shane Douglas and Mick Foley, both having been trained by Dominic Canucci, that our careers sort of mirrored each other up to that point, and uh, that there was history there that we could play off of. And so if you go back and you watch that match and the build-up to it, there was much play off of that history, and uh, of course the, the the segue with Mikey Whipwreck. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure part of it, a big part of it, was that Paul knew he was going to get a hell of a match out of the two of us. But that there was also this backstory, this back history that went along with both of us, that made this, from a promoter standpoint, uh, I would love to have something where two guys that had become major stars in the industry on different trajectories now working for me because not just their period of working for me, but all the history, the buildup from the time they stepped into the business until then now becomes part of the history. And that is something from, from a booker standpoint is a booker's dream uh, that you're able to play off of that. So 
I, I believe that's what was more at work, more so than just Paul thought that he could get a good match because we had chemistry together. And it was a perfect pairing for you. And uh, you actually would take the pinfall in your return match at House Party 96, which, again, is another kind of interesting thing. But it also led to what you were going to be doing at this match at CyberSlam against Cactus Jack. But it would ultimately really become the secondary part of the story as the re-debut of Brian Pillman would occur on this show. Now, we've talked about the loose cannon it's well documented in wrestling lore that this character that Brian Pillman created, this loose cannon, legitimately blurred the line of how he was working the fans, how he was working the locker room, how he was working management. Did you see this character as being revolutionary at that point, Shane? Because we had never seen somebody really kind of put this veil of confusion over not just the fans, but the boys, the the workers, the production people. It was amazing what Pillman was able to do with this character. Absolutely. I mean, first of all, I wasn't aware that Brian was still contracted to WCW. You know, I was going on the same information the fans were that he had been released, and you know, there was all all that backstory information. You know, so I wasn't aware of that, and. You know, in hindsight, looking back at it, uh, I got to tell you, I'm envious because I would have never thought of approaching a storyline that way. I mean, you know, you know, you got to picture this. He's going to go to Eric Bischoff, his boss in WCW, and say, "Let's work an angle where you fire me, or I'm released, or I ask my release, whatever." And you know, there's all this ancillary information that goes along with it. The release being facts, uh, you know, all the information that if say a Dave Meltzer or Wade Keller was going to go check on would be verified. And, you know, it, it just, it just so widely spread out the horizons of wrestling as, you know, instead of it being here's Shane Douglas, he works for, this promotion or that promotion, and therefore he can't possibly appear at one of these other shows. I mean, that was unheard of in those days. You know, you, if you were a, a talent for the NWA, you or you did not appear on a uh, UWF show or a WWF show. Uh, it just it was unheard of. And to see how forward-thinking and how cutting-edge Brian Pillman was with that, you know, it, it made your wheels turn. Like, what are the boundaries? What what really are the, the parameters of what I can do and what I can't do? Uh, suddenly, it, it, with what Brian Pillman was doing, cleaned the slate. You know, he much of what I see in wrestling today, uh, and for many years after Brian doing this stuff in ECW, you know, later Rick Rude coming and having worked for WWF and WCW and ECW on the same week. All of those things have routes that direct, directly lead right back to Brian Pillman. Um, you know, today, because of that, you know, the fans, you know, think they're smart because they, they now got that point of it and so aren't, aren't going to fall for it again. Well, that's just a question of till the next thing comes along. And at that time in 96, 
Brian Pillman was so far ahead of his time that he hook, line, and sinkered all of those fans in. It was a masterstroke of working, and which is what our business is supposed to be. If you can convince 1,100 fans as smart as those fans in the ECW arena were, if you can convince them that you are truly the loose cannon, the guy that told Bischoff to fuck off and all the rest of this, and be there threatening to piss in the middle of the ring, and not just the, the, the company, but the fans ready to respond, that's what tells you that you've hit the nail right on the head and you're a master worker. And Brian Pillman proved that in spades at CyberSlam 96. Oh, absolutely. And would really, that year, go on to have one of the most impressive years in terms of uh, being on the payroll of the three major wrestling companies in North America and, and creating the unbelievable buzz that he did. But unfortunately, and as we'll get into, you know, was cut off literally at the legs, you know, no pun intended. But yeah. um, what was your relationship like with Pillman leading into this? Obviously, you know, you guys had been together in WCW and you probably hadn't seen him for quite a while. But where did you two leave it in the last time you had seen each other? Well, Brian was a different kind of guy. Uh, my first night meeting Brian, you know, Jim Ross had come to me and Johnny Ace when we were the dynamic dudes and said, Hey, we have a new kid coming in. Uh, his name is Brian Pillman. Uh, do you mind if he jumps in with you guys? Well, I was keenly aware of Brian Pillman's name. I'd never seen him work, but you know, through the magazines and the dirt seats and everything, I, I knew of Brian Pillman in a big way. And the first night that we met him was West Palm beach. Uh, Florida, uh, for a TV taping for, I don't know, I guess it would still be the NWA at that point. And, uh, we got back from the arena and got cleaned up. We were going to go out that night to a, shall we say, uh, a guy's bar out. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we had, a, you know, we met downstairs and I knew that we'd be drinking. So we called a cab and, as we're driving to this nice bar, uh, you know, Brian starts saying things to the taxi driver that were a little under distasteful. Uh, and, you know, me not knowing this guy, um, just having met him earlier that night, my fear was that, you know, this taxi driver could pull over and call the cops and say we threatened him whatever uh but you know looking back on brian pillman as i know him now and i've known him since uh that point i think brian was just trying to you know sort of feel his oats and impress me and johnny uh you know but that was brian you know the loose cannon you see on camera uh, was not that far removed from the Brian Pillman that was the per person. You know, A, Brian had this amazing history in the NFL and having come in. Uh, Brian used to have this saying, uh, uh, white bread equals white death, meaning, you know, the, the, the bleach flowers and that sort of thing. Uh, was, you know, again, so far ahead of his time, like what we today would call whole foods. You know, Brian Pillman was into that, you know, 25 years ago. Uh, but, you know, 
you know, that was Brian Pillman then. And, and then leading into later times in WCW, there were a lot of nights like that with Brian that he would say, you know, an, an unsavory comment to a taxi driver or a waitress or a waiter. Uh, that was Brian. You know, he was literally living his gimmick and not just in a on camera type of way in a 24 hour a day type of way. And that was something that I'd never seen done before. You know, everybody that I'd met before that, you know, some of the biggest characters in wrestling history were this, you know, character a on camera and character B backstage. Uh, Brian Pillman was the loose cannon 24 hours a day. Which was actually my next question of was was Brian really a loose cannon? <laughs> yeah, he, uh, you know, uh, no. Let me rephrase that. Uh, no, Brian was a good guy. Uh, I think Brian pushed the boundaries as far as he knew he could. You know, like that that first night in the in the cab uh, when I said to him, you know, you know, kayfabe, you know, like lighten up. Um, he did immediately and back right off and the rest of the night was not eventful. You know, I, I just think Brian had a very different perspective than a lot of us that came into wrestling at an earlier age uh, and had a different take on wrestling because we had grown up watching it. Brian came into it and was, you know, like throwing an atom bomb at a time when a fly swatter would do. And as far beyond, uh, as much as it seemed like excess at that point, when you look back at it, for a guy coming in from where he did, again, you know, not to repeat all the history that everybody's familiar with, you know, Brian had, you know, throat cancer when he was a very young child, underwent multiple surgeries for that, uh, comes out of, most people coming out of that kind of an ordeal would be happy if their kid just grew up and graduated high school and went to college, et cetera. Brian was always an overachiever, you know, look from the standpoint of the NFL, uh, Brian's size for the NFL just didn't equate, especially at that time. And yet you could see how far beyond his abilities, Brian was willing and ready and eager to stretch beyond that. And so when you, when you take that overall picture and, condense it into a few comments the loose canon character that would come later i i think is 100 percent consistent with who brian pillman was and his life's experiences up to that point now cyberslam 96 big show at the time obviously pillman is kind of the person that really makes the show stand out and, and everyone always says debut, 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 Pillman's debut. It was not his debut in ECW. And like Chad mentioned, it was his re-debut in ECW. His debut was technically November 19th, 1984, teaming with a certain guy named Shane Douglas in the main event that right. at the ECW arena versus Ron Simmons and Two Cold Scorpio. This was actually Paul Heyman's attempt at getting fans away from the NWA title tournament that was ran by Smoky Mountain and Dennis Carluzzo with Candido winning the belt. So do you remember that night and the the actual, you know, the competition, obviously, to get people away from ECW? But also, do you remember teaming with a young, applying Brian Pillman in 1994? I sure do. 
the, the funniest thing that stands out to me about that is at that time, Sherry Martell was my quote unquote valet manager. Uh, and afterwards we were doing promos about the match and I went on one of my shoots about Hogan and Flair and all the rest of it. And as we start the promo, Brian is like shoulder to shoulder to my left. Sherry Martell is shoulder to shoulder to my right. And as I start to shoot on the other companies, they slowly start to evaporate out of camera, <laughs> both of them. And, you know, it was comical to me because it showed how uh, hesitant they were to cross the other companies, which, which was to me the point of ECW. Uh, so I, I remember the match very well. I remember the, the angle very well with, with too cold and Ron and the buildup. Now understand at that time, the reason that we were able to get Brian Pillman was because WCW. And I, I can't remember specifically what it was, but they had done something that Paul had threatened to take legal action on. And as a result, as the settlement, they gave us, uh, I thought at the time, if I'm not mistaken, I thought at the time they had offered us Steve Austin. And Austin was unable to make it. I don't know if he got hurt or what the issue was. And they sent Brian instead. And that was how that match became me and Brian Pillman versus Too Cold and Ron Simmons. You are correct on that. Yeah, Austin did get hurt at that point. So it was interesting to think that people, you know, just assume, I guess, that it was Pillman's debut. And maybe it just sounds better. Oh, it's his debut. But it's really almost the, you know, the, the debut of the newer Brian Pillman. As far as the uh, no more flying Brian than, you know, ECW would see the loose cannon Brian Pillman. Hmm. But it wasn't, you know, obviously it wasn't his debut. I'm glad uh, you remembered that. And I and I'm glad you remembered, you know, some of the backstory there because that it is kind of a, you know, important time in ECW in 94 because the NWA title tournament was that night and Heyman wanted to get some fans away from there and obviously bring them to the arena instead. And that was that kind of like we've talked about in a couple other episodes, that little bit of an internal war that ECW won with Dennis Carluzzo and obviously uh, Paul Heyman himself. A absolutely. I mean, you know, go back to that time frame. You know, uh, this was off the heels of some pretty incendiary stuff that ECW had done. And unlike today, at that point in time, we didn't know, we had no validation that the throwing down of the NWA belt was going to work, that the fans loved it, hated it, were indifferent to it. Uh, so, you know, all we could do was in that moment in time, continue on to the next point. And the point after that, and the point after that, you know, like I always tell fans when they come up to me like this past weekend, uh, thank God that the, that the belt throwdown worked because had it not worked, I, I very likely could have had a very shortened career and, you know, been sort of blackballed from the business. Um, but you know, we, it's easy today to go back and talk about, you know, the belt throwdown, Brian Pillman, uh, you know, Sherry Martel, uh, 94, 95, 96. It's easy to take any one segment of that and talk about it. 
But when you throw it into a blender and talk about it then chronologically, how did we get from point A to B to C to D? And you go back and, and analyze that. I think it puts a much better clarification on just how, uh, how forward-thinking Paul Heyman's booking was and ergo how forward-thinking Brian Pillman's thinking was for his character. Uh, I can honestly tell you, I wouldn't have had the cojones to have gone to my boss if I was under contract with WCW and said, hey, why not let me go to this company and do this and this and this and then, you know, all the different stories about WWF and ECW and WCW at that time. Uh, it, it just really, for me, from a performer standpoint and somebody that knew Brian very well, uh, just elevates him in my mind that he had a pretty resolute idea of where that character was coming from and where it was going. Now, obviously, you know, we're talking about Pillman a lot and his character and kind of where he wanted to go with his character. But I quickly just wanted to kind of go back to CyberSlam 96, the actual show results. I'll just do it quickly. Bad Crew and Judge Dredd defeat Dino Sendoff, Donnie Allen, a Dirt by Kid. Spiros Greco defeated El Aporto Requeño. Taz defeated Joel Hartgood. Bubba Ray Dudley defeats Mr. Hughes. The Bruce Brothers defeat the Headhunters. J.T. Smith defeats Axel Rotten. Francine and the Pitbulls defeat Stevie Richards and the Eliminators. Scorpio and Sabu for the ECW TV title goes to a time limit draw. Great match. Shane Douglas defeats Cactus Jack. And obviously, a Raven defeats Sandman, retains the ECW title. So just wanted to go over kind of just quickly... Uh, the res- the quick results of the match, but first thing first that kind of stands out to me, there is a lot of jobbers on this show, Shane, uh, Shane, and don't take that the wrong way, and or whatever you know, no. however you want to say. But there's a lot of guys that you wouldn't necessarily think should be on a big show like this, and a couple guys obviously stand out uh, more than others, and then obviously there's there's a couple um, nods there to where he's making fun or Heyman is making fun of some other local promoters. The guy, the jobber's right. name was Joel Hartgood, obviously Goodhart. Joel Goodhart was right. a promoter in Philadelphia. Obviously, Mikey Whipwreck is a make fun of Dennis Whipwreck, who was a promoter in, in Maryland. But does it ever like stick out to you? Like, there's a lot of guys that maybe you know, maybe he's giving a chance to, or maybe shouldn't be on the card in general. That, well, there there was a lot of that in ECW. You know, I mean, keep again, keep in mind this is not a company that's backed by a billion dollar corporation. You know, we are working show to show, literally ECW Rainer shot to ECW Rainer shot. Like I've mentioned before multiple times in interviews. Um, you know, the had any ECW Rainer show shit to bed. Had we gotten to say this month's ECW Rainer show and it was half full instead of packed, ECW might have ended that month. Uh, we we truly were hand to mouth which wasn't lost on the talent. We all knew that. It wasn't like it was told to us each time. But we all knew that had that show not done well, we might not be back next month. And there was a driving, uh, there was a uh, an energy that came from that. You know, so instead of going to the ring, like we've, we've talked about this how many times on the, on the podcast with, you know, other companies, how many times I'd seen, you know, others say, well, the building's half full, let's take it easy. 
that kind of thing. I never saw ECW uh, talent, athletes, take it easy because we didn't have the luxury of, of taking it easy. And although that sounds, from a worker's perspective, that sounds like, oh, man, that must have been tough. You know, you had to, every show put out and, 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 you know, give a successful show. Yeah, we did. The luxury of that to us was that we didn't have the luxury of taking a night off. So it kept all of our feet held to the fire. We had to deliver on a night to night basis. And so when you go back and look by that time, you know, we had talked uh, a few minutes ago about, you know, the incredible talent that had come to ECW by that time. But we still didn't have the budget to be able to pay for, you know, a dressing room, a roster full of stars. So we had to then put a lot of people on the show that Paul was going to be clearing out. You know, he was calling, C-U-L-L-I-N-G. He was calling the herd. And uh, this was the way for him to do it. And in the mean, in the process of doing that, uh, elevating somebody in the process. And, you know, I always said, if, in looking back, not just now, but even at the time, when you would see Paul Heyman get rid of a, uh, you know, a rock and rebel, and I'm not picking his name because of recent events, just sticks out in my head. And then you'd see him get rid of somebody like that and then bring in a Dean Malenko or Chris Benoit or an Eddie Guerrero. Each one of these times that he did this, uh, you would see the, the, the roster get exponentially stronger. And you could see that Paul had a much longer vision of ECW. It wasn't just today, tomorrow, next week, next month. It was where are we going to be in a year from now, two years from now, five years from now. Paul was building for the future of ECW. And that's why you see on, on an event like CyberSlam 96, you know, guys that you had mentioned like that, that in hindsight, it's easy to say, you could see these guys weren't going to fit in. But at that time, you know, sitting there in real time in 1996, there was no guarantee that Shane Douglas was going to become, uh, get hot again in ECW, or that any, any you know, the Dudleys or the Eliminators would become the, the household names in the wrestling industry that they became. Uh, so it's a, to me, it underscores all that much more about Paul's prescience and understanding of the business and moving forward, as opposed to just, well, you know, today it seems like most shows are put on and they say, well, I got somebody in match three, it's got boots and tights, that's good enough. No, it's not good enough. For the fans, you have to go out there and put on a product that compels them to want to come back the next time and underscores to them what it is this company, in this case, ECW, what this company stands for. And CyberSlam 96, I think, falls directly in that vein. So you get the six-man tag, not a very good match, and you get uh, Spiros Grecos against El Porto Keno, not very good. Taz, and basically a two-minute squash, but just do, you know doing a pretty impressive suplexes. The crowd's definitely into it. Kind of, you know, slow start for ECW. All very, very short matches. But then all of a sudden, you get Brian Pillman showing up. He makes his re-debut, if you will. It was a pretty shocking appearance. 
Now, the promo that he does is is really, really, really good. If, if fans out there haven't seen it, yeah, go to the network, go to Cyber, ECW pay-per-view, whatever, go to CyberSlam 96, check it out. It is a great, I guess you would call it, work-to-shoot promo. He runs down Eric Bischoff, or should I say, as quote-unquote from Pillman, Eric Jerkoff. Um, he <laughs> called many of the ECW fans, kept calling smart marks, and before yeah. this basically excellent, you know, maybe five, ten minute long a promo segment, whatever you want to call it, with Joey Styles kind of being that perfect foil for him. He basically says he's going to whip out his Johnson and piss in this hellhole, uh, capping this whole thing <laughs> off. You come out, you start yelling that he's shooting and, and kind of yelling at him and trying to chase him off. This is a huge, memorable angle. I feel like the most memorable angle from the show. And, you know, while being dragged out of the arena, Pillman then attacked a plant in the audience, took a fork out of his Boot, beat the hell out of him. Then security came in, and basically, you ran him off as well. What were your thoughts initially of this promo? Because the quote unquote work shoot promo, whatever you want to say, but it was so good, so realistic. You almost felt like, man, this guy is just in it for himself. What the? Where you? Know, where did this come from? No, there, there was not one second, not one word of what Brian was going to do that was spoken beforehand. You know, Bill Watts, and you've heard me say it on this before, on, on this program before, Bill Watts used to say, think, shoot, but work. And so Brian and I didn't have to say, because we'd, you know, we certainly had enough history together, having worked with him and Steve against me and Ricky Steamboat. Uh, I'd worked these guys around the loop, had known them for years. Uh, but he didn't have to come to me and say, hey, I'm planning on doing this or that. And I'm going to have a plant in the audience. I'm going to say, then after that, I'm going to say this and this and this. Didn't need that. All you had to do is go out and react to what Brian was doing. And so if it were a shoot, if we were in an arena and somebody was going to pull out their Johnson, well, you would, you know, you wouldn't go out there and say, Hey, Brian Pillman, what are you doing? You know I mean? You have to react to it naturally. And, that's exactly what we did. There was, from my recollection, there was not one point of that that was preset up. I don't recall Brian ever telling me what he was going to do. Uh, and, you know, it just sort of, the, ho- the horse, the cart follows the horse. You know, so if you go out there and follow it correctly, you know, and, and you know that there's a, you know, the premise being there's to be no contact. Well, how do you do that? And this is something I teach in the kids in my uh, uh, seminars today. There's a real artwork, which I think is vastly missing from the business today. And looking like you're doing something when you're doing nothing. You can't just stand there and say, well, I'm going to go over and lean on the turnbuckle because I know Brian Pillman's going to do this and this and this. And then at that point, I have to react. So that looks like shit and it looks fake much like the WWE today. You have to go out there and react to it in a natural way, something that's believable. And, you know, somebody goes to pull their penis out on a live program. You wouldn't go, hey, Brian, please don't do that. You know, it's you have to go out and react to that in a way that's believable, real, and organic. And uh, that's the whole reason why you don't sit in the back and say, okay, I'm going to go out and do A, and then I'm going to do B, and then I'm going to do C. 
Now, right before I get to D, I'm going to threaten to pull my penis out. Uh, that's the shit. And again, what sports entertainment does today, it's all a cue. At this second mark, this is going to happen, run out. Uh, you know, it, 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 again, not, not without not trying to, you know, overtly quote Bill Watts, but like Bill Watts used to say, it ain't rocket science. We're not curing cancer, black hat, white hat, that's wrestling. Go out and play the role. And what would your character, what would any person say in this position? That's real unbelievable. Um, and I think by and large, when you watch what Brian and I had done in the ECW arena, understanding that there was no pre-setup, there was no us sitting in the back saying, okay, I'm going to do this and this. And then at that point, this is going to happen. And then you come out and then I'm going to do this and this afterwards before I leave. There was none of that. It was Brian Pillman going out to the ring at a very specific point and me and the rest of the company playing off of that. It was as natural and as seamless as reality itself. And yet it was all still a work. How do you do that? By today's standards, quantum physics. Mm-hmm. But if done properly, it's, it really is a simple thing that sort of writes itself. Back then, especially in 96, you didn't see a whole lot of work shoot promos. And people are going to say, oh, well, ECW, you know, Shane cut them and stuff. But nothing like this before where, where you're really thinking to your head, like, first of all, what is he accomplishing here? He, like, literally seems like he's just going in it for himself or going off the cuff. Like, he seems like he lost his mind. Now he's threatening to piss in the ring. Like, you know, it was so unpredictable, so weird, so like kind of out of left field out of nowhere. It was, and plus, on the other side of it, it was so cool. You felt like you were watching something that you, you didn't quite know what was going on. Did, did uh, you ever think to yourself that he almost worked himself into a shoot at all? Did that ever cross your mind? Like, man, this guy is legitimately crazy. Yes. Uh, I often thought that of Brian. You know, that it's like, you know, for anybody, I'm going to give a little history lesson here for anybody that knows ancient Greek history about Daedalus. Um, you know, Daedalus was the, the brilliant guy who had uh, decided he was going to create a way to fly and uh, created wings and, of, of feathers and wax, flew too close to the sun, and the, 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 uh, the, the wax was melted and he fell to earth to his death. You know, when you watch Brian going back there again, all the stuff that I said before, when you see Brian blurring that line so uh, clearly between reality and and, uh, and the work um, and so seamlessly, you begin to think, like, is he getting a little bit too much into this character? Is he really beginning to believe that he is that character? But I think that is exactly, you, you can't be three-tenths of that character. If you're going to play the loose character, loose cannon, you have to be 100% that character. And for it to be believable, if you're going to go out there and sort of, you know, be 30, 40, 50% that character, at some point that's going to bleed through. Uh, you see today, what's the kid's name that plays the, uh, the crazy guy in WWE today? Um, uh, horrible Dean names Am- anymore. 
Dean, Dean Ambrose. Ambrose. Yeah. To me, he looks like a good-looking kid who's messed his hair up and is pretending to be sort of crazy. <laughs> when you looked at Brian Pillman, uh, when you watch that back, even by today's standards, knowing what we know, you go back and watch that today, and Brian Pillman looks like a half-insane son of a bitch as he's playing that character. Uh, did he fly too close to the sun? Who knows? But when you look at that just as a postage stamp, Brian Pillman in the ring doing what he was doing, uh, it's as believable as your first and last name is to you. It, it was completely viable and sellable, and that's why the fans bought into it. With Pillman, you ever think that he took it too far, especially that night? Obviously, you know, he didn't really piss in the ring, but you never know. He may have really done it if you didn't run out or, you know, if, if the situation was a little bit different. You ever think that he took it too far? I think he tap danced right along that line, which makes the character that so much more compelling. I mean, you know, we're sitting here in 2018 talking about something from 1996, 22 years ago. So it's... Uh, it, it's hard to separate those two and put yourself completely back in that mindset. But I do remember vividly me thinking to myself, what's he doing? You know, why is he pushing this far? And, you know, like the old saying in the business goes, if you can work the boys, you can sure as hell work the fans. Uh, you know, but, you know, nobody, none of us will ever know exactly how, how much of that was the real Brian Pillman how much of that was a work? How much of it was a shoot? Uh, did he push too far, not far enough? Those are things because he's no longer with us that none of us will ever be able to answer other than just based off of the acumen that we have in the industry. And looking back at what Brian Pillman did in 96, keeping in mind that nothing like this had ever been done in wrestling before, uh, especially in the advent of the big three companies. Uh, it was so cutting edge, so far beyond its time that it had to work. There was no way, you know, on that night, if you were watching it, if you were a big Brian Pillman fan and didn't believe that he was a loose cannon at some, I would dare say that at some point thereafter, you did buy into it. Uh, and saying that, I would dare say that most of the people in the building, if not all of them, believed it that night. Because for me as a performer, playing off of it, it was damn believable. So, uh, you know, like I said, you know, we'll never really get to that get to that answer because Brian Pillman's gone. But when you watch what he delivered and put down on video for us to watch forever, it was so far beyond its time and so special that you scratch your head today watching it. And if you didn't have me to be able to say, this is what was going on in the backstory. Uh, it would be very easy for you to fall into. He's buying into his character too much. He's taking it too far. Um, I also think that Brian in, in a very large way, because we had worked so much together previous to this, knew that my character would play off of that in a very strong way, had to play off of that in a very strong way. I couldn't just go out and 
you know, sort of half-ass it and say, gee, golly whiz, Brian, why are you going to whoop your Johnson out? Uh, you had to play it so strongly, straightforwardly that uh, it almost guaranteed that it would be played out the way that he saw it in his head. And to me, that is a stamp of approval on the way that I responded to it because uh, otherwise, had he not trusted me to respond to that in that way, my guess is that Brian would have said to me before, hey, by the way, I'm thinking about doing this or that, you know, just be just be ready for it. Um, that he didn't do that, that he didn't give me that heads up, tells me that he trusted my character to play off his character and what his character was doing in the ring as realistically and believable as, any, as if it were a shoot. And so, uh, you know, that in and of itself, I think, speaks more for Brian's uh, view of what he was doing and his believing in what he was doing. And it plays out on video to a T. With him, I think one of the crazy things is you'll hear, like, you know, a story from Jim Ross or Blue Mini or a bunch of really smart guys that have been in and around the business for years. And they'll say, like, Pillman, like, pulled him off the side and whispered, like, it's just the work. I'm working. And then he would do something crazy again. And they, they would think of themselves, oh, like, wait a second. He's working me by saying that it's a work. He legitimately right. is crazy. It's like one of those people where, like, you say a really mean joke. Somebody like, oh, I'm joking. I'm joking. And then you say it again. It's like the person's like, wait a second. Is, yeah. Are they joking? Are they joking? Or do they really mean it? Isn't that just like the ingenious part of him? Even when he said he was working, people were like, no, you're not. You're crazy. And then they'll be like, wait a second. Maybe he is working. us. Isn't that just a part of like the, the mastermind that he was that even a smart guy like Jim Ross or a really smart guy like Lou Meany just sitting there thinking to themselves like, wait, you said you were working me, but were you working me? Like, you know what I mean? That confusion factor. Sure. I mean, look, I, I can sit here today and say, I knew when I threw the NWA title down, I was going to work. Um, I didn't. I, I, I was hoping, and I had a pretty good feeling that it would, but I didn't know for certain. And like I've told the fans this past weekend in Knoxville and ever since, had it not, you know, I might be a footnote in the industry. Um, the fact that Brian Pillman was that uh, sure of what he was doing was going to work and that he was willing to go that extra step to try to work Jim Ross or Blue Meanie or whoever in the back tells me that he had a much deeper belief in what he was doing and was able to play it out uh, in a much further uh, distance than I could, uh, or that I would have been willing to at that point. Um, you know, to me, I, I go back and I watch that footage of Brian and, and all the things he did from holding the baby up from the chair shot to the, I'm going to piss in the ring to the jumping into Harry Boatswain's arms, uh, all of it in ECW as a, just a freeze frame in time was so eloquent from a standpoint of working it uh, that it really does, you know, you know, for those of us in the business and we, we hear coming up in the business, you have to learn to tell a story, kid. you got to work it, and, you know, all, all those different, uh, you 
you know, find a way to be different. All those little cliches you hear from all the old timers. Brian Pillman had that down in spades. And you can see it. You don't take my word for it. You can see it in going back and taking what we're talking about tonight and watching that video and seeing how truly special what he was doing on camera was. How forward thinking, how certain of the outcome he was. And uh, I'm sure that he that he had gone to the pains that he did to make that angle what it was, that he had a plan B, a plan C, and a plan D, that if it didn't work, how would he play off of it? Uh, he had thought this down to the minutia and portrayed it so believably and so realistically that it, it tells me that he must have had a plan B and a plan C and a plan D in mind if it didn't work. Now, there's an infamous promo, I'll get back to Cyberslam and some other Pillman things that you just touched on, but I wanted to mention this first. There's a Pillman promo in ECW where he's wrestling a pencil, and a lot of people know, obviously, that he's, <laughs> you know, the meaning of it, Sullivan was the booker in WCW, and, you know, he's crazily yeah. wrestling, wrestling the pencil, but I feel like there's a little bit of backstory I just want to touch on, it, if maybe some people or fans just don't know. Obviously, in WCW, Pillman was having a feud with Sullivan. He was quote-unquote unhappy there and he didn't like the way things were going down and he you know he talked to bischoff about it and apparently sullivan says as well that they kind of worked at an angle where you know they would have this feud at super bowl 96 it would culminate and pillman would basically walks out and says you know uh, you know i give up booker man i quit and he and he you know referring to sullivan sullivan wins the match and pillman's gone but leading up to that there is a promo on WWE Saturday Night with Kevin Sullivan where he has a pencil, he's obviously signifying that he's the booker, he's writing this, and he snaps the pencil and he says, Pillman, I'm going to break you and snap you, basically saying that he can't control him because he has the pencil. You know, it's a lot of deeper, you know, basically smart, quote-unquote smart mark kind of stuff. You, I mean, you didn't see a lot yeah. of that in 96, especially WCW. I'm sure a lot of fans out there maybe missed that or forget about that promo, but it's kind of interesting like that, that they really went deep and, and really, really wanted to you know, shoot hard or you know, work to smart mark in that angle. So when Pillman says, Booker, man, I'm out of there, and then Pillman's wrestling that quote-unquote pencil, making fun of Sullivan in ECW, it's really smart. And a lot of you know, young fans might have not realized it at the time or some other fans might not realize it, but that really played to that ECW crowd and those smart fans and it was very you know you know thought provoking do you remember you know seeing that promo and just thinking to yourself like wow you know we're really uh we're really uh, you know kind of unveiling that fourth wall if you will yeah it clearly was taking the fans behind the curtain and you know up to that point you know that was unheard of i had tried when i was in wwf in 95 to do something in the same vein, uh, where I wanted the dean to be sitting in front of a classroom and have somebody keep making noise in the back of the classroom before I would finally pound my fist and say, Mr. Belief, if you would sit down and shut up in this class, maybe you'll finally learn something about the industry you're in. <laughs> and uh, Vince McMahon said to me, you know, he did the same thing you guys did. He chuckled and he said, uh, I love it, but we don't do that here in the WWF. Uh, so showing that Brian, you know, comparing to what Brian was able to do and 
and fleshing that out. I mean, you know, I've got a world of respect for Kevin Sullivan and his ability to see the bigger picture and, and that big storyline. You know, I think clearly he would have seen the value in what Brian was proffering up from the storyline. Today, if you went to the WWE and said, hey, I'm thinking about doing this where I shit on the company and shit on you, Vince, and I'm going to end up working a show over here for New Japan or Ring of Honor or TNA, I think Vince would think you were nuts and would never in a million years allow it to happen. But again, that goes to the heart of what is missing from the business today. Uh, how do you convince the fans that are watching that have watched how do you convince that fan that what they're watching is believable, is real, uh, is a shoot, and you have to be able to put yourself in the mindset of the fan to figure that out. How, how, what will the fans believe as being real? What is corny and over the top? What's believable as a shoot? And Brian in a very early period when this started to become the, uh, the, uh, the mantra of the business, Brian was one of the first in the business to see that and do it and execute it fully. Uh, you know, I, I can't in any shape or form envision how anybody today would be allowed to execute something like that. But, I also think that goes to a bit larger part of what's wrong with the business today. Why do we see the industry dropping uh, from 10 million to 8 million to 6 million to 5 million to 3 million to 2 million? And, and you know, for the last 10 years, subsequently dropping in, 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 in numbers. You know, in a microcosm, I saw it in Knoxville this weekend. There was not one fan in Knoxville that told me I love more today what I'm seeing than any time in wrestling. The closest I got is I got one fan to say, I know it's the shits, but I still watch just hoping that hoping against hope that it gets back to what it used to be. And every other fan than that one said something akin to, uh, I've given up. I've moved on. I love wrestling, but I just don't think they're going to give it to me anymore. So when you see where we sit today in the dwindling numbers and you look back to what Brian was doing, do you think what Brian was doing then would work today? Uh, not necessarily piecemeal the same thing, but something in that same vein, something that somebody could blur that line between reality and, uh, and shoot would they be able to get the fans to bite? And I've got to believe they would. That's how far ahead of his time Brian was. So far ahead of his time and still has people questioning it. Like when you asked Bischoff, he still doesn't know if Pillman was working him or not. Sullivan kind of says that he was working with Pillman, but then he has an inkling where he wasn't sure if he was being worked or not by Pillman. You think when he left WCW to go to ECW, although technically still with WCW, because he would return after ECW, um, you know, kind of in the in the middle. Uh, I guess it was somewhere, you know, late April, March. Um, he would kind of return to WCW. 
or you know somewhere a- around uh, April ish, I guess you could say uh, early April, um, late March, um, where he make a few brief appearances. One appearance, they actually miss him on the camera. The camera guy doesn't even catch film in there, but he was there. Yeah, and the fan, fans knew <laughs> WW. And then a week later, he attacked Macho Man, supposedly leading to the big cage match and uncensored, where he was going to be in that match and. He doesn't show up. The announcers even mentioned that he doesn't show up. So is it interesting to you at this point that Pillman is within basically ECW and WCW at the same time? Yeah, for sure. Especially at that time, you know, today in hindsight, everything is 2020, but at that time to see that, and not that we knew it at the time, I, I genuinely believe that Brian had been fired from WCW had his release, whatever words you want to use, and was coming to ECW, and then later would work in WWF and was doing this sort of just moving from promotion to promotion, uh, it never struck me that it was a work. I just believed it at face value, as what the fans were seeing was the same thing that I was believing. Uh, He never smartened any of us up, at least not me, and I'm guessing if he didn't me, he did in the rest of the dressing room. And so, uh, you know, that in and of itself plays into what I talked about earlier, you know, playing off it as a shoot. If this is a shoot, how would you respond? Uh, it's, it's so simple from Brian's point of view, knowing what we know today, that when you flash back to that period of time, it's eloquent. It, it, it is so beautiful in the way that he portrays it that it's uh, it, it, it may be the pinnacle of a work shoot angle. I mean, what what more could you possibly do uh, than to make it that believable and uh, uh, that digestible by the audience? And I'm not sure what more you could do on top of that than what we already saw Brian do with that way back in 1996. He has several really interesting appearances as far as promos. I mentioned the pencil one. That one is very memorable and just one of those things where we're like, wow, you know, he's blurring reality here. I mean, we're really starting to see behind yeah. the scenes and he has a funny scene where he's wrestling the pencil, beating up the pencil. Then he has that naked <laughs> promo where he threatens, I guess, again, so to speak, to show his dick on TV where he's naked and he's kind of making make fun of Bischoff and, and doing other stuff. Then he has that weird promo at the restaurant where he's dressed in that really cool suit that he used to wear with like um, basically all black, but there's no tie to it. It's a really like interesting almost look kind of like futuristic uh, kind of suit where he writes, I guess, an autograph, so to speak, but then he writes, it's all a work. And, and like that gets caught. Like, <laughs> and then you're thinking to yourself, it is, it isn't. Like, you, you know, you're so confused. So memories, like many, many, excuse me, many memorable moments, but in a, such a short period of time, which goes to show you, man, the loose cannon, it had so much likes to it. Obviously, there was supposed to be a match with you against him April 15th of 96. Were you aware of this match that was supposed to happen? Was it definitely set in stone that it was going to happen? Did Heyman go over anything with you that this was all leading to a match against Pillman? Only that I knew that there was to be a match coming off of that. Otherwise, I wouldn't have played into it the way that I did. Uh, But, you know, it, it was at that point, 
that's where I started to realize there was something more going on than just a straightforward shoot that there was, uh, you know, if he had come to ECW and was an ECW talent, then Paul would have been able to book that match and move forward seamlessly. And when that match didn't come off, that's where I started scratching my head and thinking, okay, there's something more going on here. Than I still didn't have it down as clearly as we know it today, but I knew that there was something more going on because uh, of him not fulfilling that match after doing all that in the ECW arena. You think that, obviously, you know, the car accident, the horrible car accident yeah. that, that he ends up getting into obviously plays uh, a huge, huge, major role into, into why it basically, the match doesn't happen. But you figure that there could have been, uh, you know, um, Maybe earlier on, so to speak, like they, he could have went to the, the feud right away. But I guess he was trying to drag it out a little bit. But there's never a match between you guys. Angle kind of didn't go anywhere to where they wanted it to go. The loose cannon persona, if you will, um, became a little bit out of control. And you always hear that him and Heyman were having arguments and that him and Heyman weren't getting you know, along together. Then you hear that he was badly injured after falling asleep, driving the Hummer, gets in that horrible car accident, flips mm. the car. He was in a coma for a week. He suffered that horrible shattered ankle. The doctors fused it together. He was kind of walking weird. Uh, he had a cane. Um, obviously, it kind of forced him to not really do the, more of the high flying. He was kind of going away from the high flying stuff, but he obviously forced him to be way more of a grounded wrestler. But, you know, yeah. kind of go, going back to where I wanted to kind of really go to was did you, did you hear or see any problems with him and Heyman? Because there was a lot of rumors at, at this point that those two were not on the same page, and I could see a lot of people not being on the same page as, as Pillman. Yeah. Um, I wasn't aware of it overtly at the time. Uh, at some short span after that, you know, when, you know, Brian started going in all the different directions. Uh, I, I can't recall specifically if it was a discussion with Paul Heyman or just weaning from what I was watching. But it was pretty clear that, you know, Brian at that point after the accident, you know, and then the ensuing videos of him that were airing on WWF, uh, it was pretty clear that he was pretty much done with each other and had moved on. And, uh, you know, from my point of view, not that I would ever begrudge anybody from going and, and making money and getting signed to a contract, especially after something as terrible as the accident that Brian had been in. Uh, but there was a big part of me that really felt, uh, I don't want to say cheated, uh, let down by the fact that that match would not transpire in ECW because I was excited as a fan, as a mark of the business. I was excited to see what Brian bought, brought to that match, that ultimate, you know, ECW talent versus WCW talent to the forefront. That really was what the fans were looking for. They wanted to see ECW kick the shit out of WCW and WWF. And this was to be that platform for that. 
So when it didn't happen, it was evident that it wouldn't happen. Uh, I remember just a big feeling of letdown, not anger with Brian, because again, we all have the right to decide for our families what, and, and, and have the commission of figuring out what is best for us and our families. But because he and I had put so much time into this in ECW plus had the backstory of him and Steve versus me and Ricky Steamboat that it really made you, like I was looking forward to that match in a big, big way and one that wouldn't happen. Definitely a huge letdown. When you get guys in ECW and you build something up, you definitely need that payoff. And I feel like sometimes you didn't get it. And I don't want to blame Heyman. And obviously, if he was having problems with Pillman, maybe Pillman was kind of wishy-washy on the idea. I mean, I mean, really, who the hell knows? Because Pillman's unpredictable, and you're definitely not going to get a straight answer at, at a Paul Heyman. <laughs> right. we, we know that from, from you know 54 weeks of the show. We know that. So <laughs> do you ever think to yourself, like, saying to Paul at this point or, or when, when Pillman debuts, like, Hey Paul, what's the end game here? You know, that this guy might not be around long term. Let's, you know, let's get a match. Do you ever think about going on Paul and, and, and kind of getting, you know, the, the, the storyline arc or kind of get the, the climax of the feud or anything like that. Does that, any of that ever go through your head? Like, man, let's, let's talk to Paul and let's get his idea of, of when, how, and where we can finish this feud or, or get a match or, or whatever. Absolutely. In fact, I did. I went to Paul and, you know, because there were some, and I can't remember specifically what they were, but there were some indicators early on from Brian that what we were seeing was not the full story. And uh, what I, my biggest fear was that ECW would be left holding the back, that here's this tremendous storyline and no payoff to it and not taken to the next level just sort of dangled out there that would fizzle out. And I can't remember the exact verbiage that Paul used, but it boiled down to that Paul was trusting of Brian Pillman and saw it, you know, playing out the way that he had envisioned the angle to play out. And of course we know now in hindsight that it didn't play out that way. Um, again, I, I can't fault Brian if, you know, especially today sitting 2018 looking back, I can't fault Brian Pillman if he made a decision in this industry uh, to decide that I'm going to do this because I think it's better for my family. Who am I to say that Brian Pillman was wrong in making that decision? Uh, you know, what's that old saying? Don't judge somebody till you walk a mile in their shoes. Um, you know, so I would never do that and try to second guess Brian's reasoning for what he did. Uh, but I do remember vividly having that conversation with Paul uh, when it was evident that that, that angle was not going to be, it was not going to get the blow off that it deserved. Feels like ECW a lot of times, and not only ECW, I mean, there's been times in Ring of Honor where the same exact things have happened years later where, you know, where you have a Foley come in and a few with Samoa Joe doesn't get the blow off or Ricky Steamboat and CM Punk doesn't get the blow off. So, I mean, there's a lot of instances I can name a million others from WWE and WWF as well, but there's so many of those in ECW where sometimes you're like, damn it. I, you know, you wish that it could have been something bigger or better. And 
Tillman versus you is one of those instances, especially with the history of the Hollywood Blonde versus Tillman and Steamboat kind of building off of how you became the franchise and he became the loose cannon and, and the almost role reversal of a Pillman and a Douglas. <laughs> was it weird that you were kind of the face and he was the heel as, as this thing is kind of building and culminating? Because that's not a normal franchise ECW role. And the loose cannon Brian Pillman in WCW, you know, previously, obviously, against you, was, was a face most of the time. Yeah. It, it was a very awkward feel. Uh, the franchise was always played as the unredeeming character, the guy that no matter how many big words and phrases he used could not fully enunciate and explain what he was doing, uh, clearly in, in some world of his own. And yet here I was being equaled and rivaled by a guy that was exceeding that, was stepping beyond that. Mine was based off of the history of the industry where I came from. Brian's was based off of some blank slate that, in hindsight, looking back, was far ahead of its time. Um, you know, it, it uh, you know, for me, like I've, I've mentioned before in this in this podcast, the the thing about the ECW about ECW was that we literally were contingent on the ECW arena show every three, three and a half weeks. Had any one of those events shit to bed, ECW could have been on a business that week. Um, so when we had put so much into this Brian Pillman angle that maybe even more so today looking back, but certainly at the time that, that I was involved in it, felt like it had the legs. This, this, Angle had something special to it, in large part because of what Brian brought to it. And the fact that that would not take place, I think, underscored uh, the Achilles heel of ECW, you know, that we were so contingent on point A to B to C to D. How do we now, after spending all this much time with these top characters of ECW, uh, just sort of meander around this dangling storyline that is like a pimple right in the middle of your nose. You know, it, it's hard to do. And in many ways, impossible to do successfully. And when he left uh, ECW to, to, to go on, again, he has every right and responsibility to do that for his family. But it really did leave us um, in a pickle. You know, how do we play off of that? How do, is there any way that we can talk about this in a, in a, in a past meaning tense and not make the company itself look bad? And I, I just remember being a very tough time to move forward. Paul, in his way of doing things, was just to move forward as if it never happened. And, you know, although it might have worked short term, I think in hindsight, looking back, uh, for the purists of ECW, and I think most of the fans in watching ECW were purists for the product. How do you do that? How do you have this big of a deal? You know, two former WCW tag team champions, two young stallions from the business and the rising up. How do you have this big of an angle get right to that point and then just sort of fizzle and have no way forward? Uh, at the time when Paul moved past it and sort of ignored it as if it almost never happened. Um, 
might have looked right at the time, or you know, maybe the fans didn't give him much thought at the time. But in hindsight, looking back, it's one of those untapped uh, gems that ECW never got the chance to capitalize on. Big, big time. That was uh, definitely one that I was looking forward to. I know a million other fans they were looking forward to the loose cannon versus the franchise. And I remember we were kind of talking about this off here, but now I, I, I remember that there was, it was big ass extreme bash. Uh, it was March 8th and 9th. One show was in New York and one was in Philly. I think I was kind of combining them both, but it was in Philly at the East W arena where that whole Harry Boatswain incident happened where he jumped into his arm. Do you remember that night? Big ass extreme bash 96, because that was another thing kind of building up and just, kind of putting that feud really into the hyperdrive and nothing, obviously nothing would come of it. But do you remember the Harry Boatswain incident with uh, Brian Pillman that night in, in New York? Uh, excuse me, in Philadelphia. Yeah, very much so. I, when he, I saw him, when I chased him out of the ring and he ran to ringside, my expectation was he would just jump the railing and leave the building. And instead he jumps to ringside and runs down to the corner and jumps into this huge guy's arms. Uh, I had no idea. I, you know, I certainly knew who Harry Boatswain was. Um, and I, I had no idea he was in the building. I had no idea he was there for Brian. Uh, it just, you know, as soon as he jumped into his arms, I obviously knew that it must have been some kind of a setup. But I was shocked by that because, you know, Harry Boatswain at the time was a huge name for the Philadelphia Eagles. <laughs> And even in and of itself, that one thing that he did, jumping into Harry Boatswain's arms, to me, sort of put ECW on the map. You know, that here is anybody that follows the Philadelphia Eagles, and Harry Boatswain was a big name for them at the time. Uh, you know, th that, that sort of elevated everything from ECW. It wasn't just, some little tiny independent wrestling company that was, you know, doing something and, you know, trying to get a storyline over. Now you've got an NFLer here in the building. And, uh, I don't know if you ever mentioned I'm, to Paul, my guess is he probably would have, but the fact that he didn't, anybody else, me included the guy that was working with him in that angle, I think, just again, goes back to what I said before about how forward thinking Brian was and, and creating and crafting out this loose cannon character. Now you can't be a loose cannon and play by the rules. You know, uh, Kevin Sullivan said to me one time about Dean Ambrose, he said, you know, he looks like a crazy guy, but you know, he looks like a guy that would come to the, to the, to the New York city, uh, uh, subway system and put a token in before he'd go through. <laughs> well, wouldn't a crazy guy just dump the barrier and get on the train? Uh, you know, it's how believable you play a particular character. And in Brian Pillman's case, him leaving the ring and jumping into the Philadelphia Eagles, Harry Boatswain's arms at ringside, to me, there wasn't a fan in that building that didn't know who Harry Boatswain was. Uh, and... It just put an exclamation point at the end of that particular uh, segment of the angle. And uh, brilliantly done. Absolutely brilliantly done by Brian. So many different little things that he would do were so good. His psychology was so good. 
the way he would just kind of his mannerisms and movements, everything Pillman did was, was just so good. And, and just, I don't know, just everything was so perfect and just fit his character. And I'm just thinking of kind of like, not to make fun of today's wrestling so much, but just to think like that character so well developed. It's something that he came up with himself. It, I just can't see today them letting, let's just say, you know, whoever i mean you mentioned ambrose before who's you know let's be honest he's kind of a joke and he's just kind of like faked up and just kind of throws his hair around he's just a terrible actor but just imagine if they gave a guy who had you know extreme amount of talent like a Samoa joe or something where it's like okay here's a character you can carve it out do you even think that they could come up with something like loose cannon and, and be that creative with it or is it just he had such a great mind for the wrestling business the, the answer is definitively, there is no chance that the WWE can come up with anything nearly that creative today. Um, and that's, uh, and, and that, that's for anybody that's writing the WWE today, I wouldn't think that's a slam towards them. They, they, it just couldn't be done today. Um, you know, I don't see, you know, again, there's so many vestiges of what Brian did that, piecemeal morsel by morsel fed into that character that there's no way Vince McMahon would let say a Bobby Roode go to work for some other promotion and you know dabble between the two and you know do all the rest and I say Bobby Roode for very intended purpose I'm a huge fan of and mark for Bobby Roode's work and yet we see him just sort of on the card meandering about when he's probably the best pure worker they have on their card um, there's no chance that anything nearly as cutting edge as what Brian Pillman was doing at the time would, would ever be considered or make air in the WWE uh, today. But, you know, that said, it's, it's, I'm sure there's multiple other people in the business today that have the desire and the, uh, uh, the respect for the history of the business to, try to work down that kind of an avenue. But you have to understand when you work in the WWE, individual thought is frowned upon. You know, so you go to a writer and say, hey, I was thinking instead of that, what if we did this? You're going to walk out of it with a shitload of heat. That's not the way things operate in the WWE. So, you know, like you heard Vince McMahon say in his uh, podcast with Steve Austin, you know, you know, why aren't they reaching for the, the golden ring? And when Austin pushes the issue and says they're afraid of getting their balls cut in so many words, what does Vince say? Well, then they shouldn't reach for the golden ring. If you work there and you heard that comment, and I, I'm 1,000% certain every single young wrestler in that dressing room heard that comment, would you reach, reach for the brass ring? Would you go to the writer and say, I'm thinking about doing something like this and pushing the envelope. The answer is no. And so, uh, you know, how many times you've heard me say on this podcast and in any interview I've done, you know, it ain't rocket science and, you know, we're, you know it's not this difficult to figure out. And yet it is when you have a, uh, a system that is predicated on shut your mouth, do what you're told, we don't give a fuck about your creativity and it quickly brings you to the, to the, uh, 
to the final point that you can see why their product looks like their product looks. And with Pillman, Steve Austin has said this before, that he would study not only Bruiser Brody and Terry Funk to kind of nail his, his character, obviously with his own twist, but he would study some serial killers as well and try to get that into <laughs> it and, and put that twist in it, into it. Have you ever heard of Pillman kind of studying not only Funk and Brody, but some serial killers as well? Yeah, Brian, you know, we, we would be driving down the road and Brian would just bring up some conversation, you know, hey, did you see the article about Ted Ted Bundy or whatever? I, you know, just, uh, you know, when you're driving, you know, keep in mind when you're wrestling on the road, you're on the road and in the car with your buddies for hours and hours and hours and hours. There's only so much music you can listen to. There's only so many jokes you can tell. And once you get to that point, once everybody's told all the jokes they know and everybody's listening to the music they want to listen to, that's when you start to get more into the truer person that is sitting next to you. And, you know, uh, Brian was somebody that, he, again, I, I, like I said earlier, you can't just look at this and say, well, this is Brian Pillman, this great athlete, playing this character and pushing this envelope, the loose cannon. You know, Brian Pillman portrayed that character throughout. You know, I, I can't tell you many times we'd be in a restaurant and, you know, Brian would, with his pristine diet, he would send back a very, very detailed order. So, uh, you know, a typical Brian Pillman order might be something like, hey, I want, you know, half a dozen eggs. Uh, I want three egg whites and three whole eggs fried with no oil, uh, wheat toast dry. That means no butter. And, you know, and this type of thing, he would go down this type of, you know, rundown when he was giving an order. And then after doing that and playing character, he would say, you know, uh, you know, uh, something along the lines of, uh, you know, Hey, Hey, Betty waitress, do you think you can do that without fucking it up? And you know, stuff like that. <laughs> and at which point I would intone, uh, make sure you know mine is the stack of pancakes, <laughs> not the, the, the eggs, because, uh, you know, it was, uh, but, you know, I, you know I, I can easily see the difference between Brian Pillman, the person, and Brian Pillman, the character, because I spent so much time with him. Um, Brian was a great guy. And, you know, I have no doubt that those type of comments to the taxi driver or to the wait waiters or waitresses were predicated off him building this character to a, you know, to in, in, in part to uh, evoke a response from those of us watching it transpire, but also in large part based on his desire to create something that was cutting edge, something different, and. I think in all in all respects, Brian Pillman exceeded everything he expected to attain by what he was doing, whether it was impressing us as the guys being with him or further uh, 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 carving out that character that became the loose cannon. Did he ever do anything that would irk you or piss you off as far as that loose cannon character? 
he ever get you to kind of go over the edge and you yourself break <laughs> character? Are you kidding me? Half the time we were on camera, he pissed me off, which was the, which was exactly what his character was meant to do. Uh, you know, the, the night that he pulled the baby out in front of him when I was swinging a chair at him, uh, you know, he had never said anything to me beforehand about that. And the same thing with all the other stuff that we're talking about. That was Brian. It was to help you find the anger in your character to evoke that part believably on camera as it was to help him play that character on camera. Yeah, I mean, Brian would, you'd come back half the time, you know, chewing on your tongue, you know, you know, pissed off and screaming because you know, he had done something that you didn't expect. And, uh, you know, at the time, you know, there was no easy answer to it. It wasn't like somebody come back and said, ah, he was just working. It wasn't that easy. You know, you, I would be so pissed off that when I'd come back, uh, it was best that Brian not be in the building, that Brian had jumped into Harry Boats Wayne's arms and was back at the Marriott because uh, I didn't want to hear any bullshit story about why he did it. Uh, but, again, on camera, that elicited incredible response by everybody that was involved in the ring. He was definitely ahead of his time, definitely to the point where he may have almost worked everyone as far as Heyman probably didn't know, you know whether he was working him or not. Bischoff, I don't think, knew if he was working him or not. Vince, I don't think, knew... Um, but even himself, I don't know if he himself knew because you hear all these stories of how sometimes he would kind of uh, go to be at a hotel when none of the other wrestlers were there and, and be freaking out on, on the staff and, and freaking yeah. out at people. You ever hear these backstage stories of him or kind of away from the wrestlers and be by himself and, and all of a sudden people see him doing all strange and, and just weird things? Yes, and, and, and you know I've heard them. I don't know how many of them are accurate or 100% accurate, but uh, to me, I've always likened that, you know, since Brian's passing, I've always likened that with the story of Bedless I said earlier about, you know, when you get somebody, when you, if you start to lean in and portray a particular character and you do it for vast portions of the day uh, or for vast portions of a week, when you're traveling with other talent, uh, that certainly most of which certainly knows what a work is to a suit. And you start to portray that in that believable of a manner. How do you then turn it off? You know, how do you then say, well, I'm, you know, I'm at the, you know, at the airport to fly home to Cincinnati and I'm not around Shane Douglas or Steve Austin or Brian, uh, or, or, uh, Ricky Steamboat anymore how do I now shut that off? And I'm not sure there's an easy answer to that. You know, it's not as easy as saying, okay, flip a switch, you're on, flip a switch, you're off. If you're portraying that character like Brian was, so 24-7. So, as I said, I don't want to give any credence to any, any story that's, you know, floating around out there that this, these are all accurate or they're not accurate. Uh, I've heard them and, you know, believe there's probably some validity to some of it, 
but you know it's it's awfully easy to see how somebody that's how do I word it somebody that's dived, you know dived so deeply into that character how they may not be able to turn it off so easily when they're no longer around the guys. Do you think that that character ever got stale at any point? Not for the fact that the character, because it definitely didn't, but the point where nobody could really almost work with him because they didn't know if they were working or not. Like, right, there's near a certain point where you're like, okay, we're going to have to wrestle. We might have to talk to each other. We're going to have to, you know, come to some sort of consensus here, almost like Terry Funk, like, okay, he's crazy, but he's crazy like a fox, and he knows when there's business at hand, he knows how to get things done. So with Pillman, was there ever a point where it's like, oh, my God, like, hello, when are we going to start to uh, get professional here and, and, you know, try to work some things out? For me, personally speaking, it was like that every night working with Brian. Uh, you sort of, like, grabbed on and held on for dear life um, and, and did the best you could in playing off of that. Uh, yeah, I think there's a possibility that you can get to a point where uh, you make it so difficult for the people that you play off of to play off of that it starts to impact uh, how that is being perceived. You know, for me, like, and I, not to put the heat on Brian, but, you know, for me, when I look back and I see, you know, how the WWF or WWE, whatever it was at that moment in time, uh, you know, they're outside the house, Brian's house, and, you know, there's this playoff as Steve Austin breaking into the house, and, Brian Pillman's got the gun, and after he had the ankle surgery, uh, to me, watching that, that comes off much like a WWE storyline today comes off. as totally contrived and totally unbelievable that it smacks you in the face to try to make you believe that you can believe in it. And, you know, so I don't know if that's the culmination of Brian playing that character at that point for some length of time, or it's the way the WWF presented it in the way that they present things. Uh, it's hard to discern the two to separate the two. Um, but who knows? I mean, you know, my take on that would be if I had to place a bet one way or the other, I would place the bet as you might be surprised, uh, as putting the heat on the WWF and trying to portray that as a shoot, when, you know, you got Brian sitting there in the cast on his ankle and propped up on pillows and, you know, pretty hard to be a threat when you're in that situation. Now, obviously, it would have been great if Pillman versus Shane Douglas actually happened at that point. Obviously, he would go to the WBF. Were you shocked that not only did he go to the WBF, but Mick Foley went to the WBF basically around the same point? Did that, does that ever surprise you that, you know, that they would go there or does it ever surprise you that the WBF really wanted those two guys in particular? No, I, I mean, again, look at, again, everything's relevant to the point in time that, that, that you reference it from. And for not only that point, but ECW for its entire duration, uh, was never a real threat to the WWF or WCW. Both of those companies could pay exponentially more than ECW could ever dreamt of, of paying. 
So, you know, my take on it as being one of the boys is you can never fault somebody for going for what they perceive as being a bigger payday. Although I have a different take on the quote unquote bigger paydays. Um, the, uh, you know, any, we all, my fervent belief is that we all have the right to choose. Troy Martin has the right, the sole right to choose what the franchise character will do. Uh, Michael Foley has the sole right to permit fully mankind, whatever incarnations he had, dude love, all the rest of it, as did Brian Pillman for his character. And uh, what I think today is my overriding take away today is that it surprises me that that many people would still want to go to the Fed when, you know, you hear ad nauseum the stories coming out about the pays being the shits, uh, the dwindling numbers, uh, you know, we know we've talked previously, so I'm not being a dead horse about how they were able to sell the B show for $1.2 billion. But here's a little, you know, primer for all the kids in the dressing room. If you think part of that money is going to somehow work its way down to your paycheck, I, I've got a really good Aerosmith song called Dream On that uh, <laughs> probably is apropos in this, in this case. But no, as far as Mick Foley or Brian Pillman deciding to leave and go to what they perceived at that time as being greener pastures, how can you fault somebody for pursuing a dream and thinking that they're doing the right thing for their family at the time? Yeah, you really can. It just was kind of surprising for to me anyway that Pillman was essentially, if you think about it, getting paid in the same month from WCW, ECW, and the WWF. I don't know if there has ever been a guy that could ever say the three biggies. He was getting paid from all of them and possibly working all of them to get that paycheck. So maybe he was crazy, but maybe really he was just crazy like a fox. Yeah, I, I think in hindsight, I think Brian Pillman was was taking Terry Funk's words uh, <laughs> and, and putting them to masterful use that he was able to do that. And, you know, uh, for me, Brian Pillman always stands out as being, you know, when I think, every time I hear an ECW chant or I think of ECW, and, you know, we almost, you know, just, just by reaction, think of Sandman and, and Raven and Taz and the Triple Threat and Francine, you know, and you go through the whole liturgy of the talent that was there. Uh, but in my head, you know, Brian Pillman at the time that he was in there, and same with Sherry Martell, is that they both play very large into the legend that is ECW. And in Brian's case, in large, large part because of the type of character that he played, the loose cannon character that he debuted in ECW and fleshed out in ECW, uh, that it stands out. Even though Brian was a WCW talent coming to ECW and you know blurring those lines in between, uh, he remains in the pantheon of ECW legends you know, like a Bam Bam Bigelow, a Chris Candido, a uh, uh, public enemy, you know, down the list of all the incredible guys that had gone through there. I think that Brian Pillman's 
portrayal of the loose cannon in ECW really set the stage for where wrestling would go for the next 25 years. And Brian unfortunately died at the age of 35 on October 5th, 1997. He died in his hotel room in Bloomington, Minnesota. It was actually the result of a heart attack. He had a heart disease, very rare form. It was actually the same death as his father had. Yeah, I remember getting a phone call about Brian. And, uh, you know, at that point, again, you know, everything's relevant to the point in time it sits. At that time, you know, we hadn't had this constant onslaught. Uh, it had just, that, that was sort of the front end. And, uh, you know, Brian was one of those guys that was in such phenomenal shape and was so pristine with his diet. Uh, you know, I talked about white death, white flower, white death earlier. That really was Brian Pillman. You know, forget the character, the loose cannon, and the rest of it. That was Brian Pillman, the human being. And, uh, you know, ate a, an extraordinarily clean diet. So when we heard in the business that he had died of a heart attack, uh, it just was one of those things where like a, suddenly there was a huge question mark in your head. Like, how did that guy die of a heart attack? It wasn't like he ate fatty meats every night, a big, thick, greasy steak, uh, you know, and just lived life how it was. Brian Pillman was extraordinarily disciplined on his diet. And, you know, yet we see the end result. Um, you know, in, in many ways, it sort of mirrors the frustration I have that, you know, and, and Chris Candido's passing, you know, that here's a guy who for years I expected to get a call on, uh, gets cleaned up, gets in phenomenal shape, and then comes to TNA and ends up dying from a broken ankle. Uh, it's just, you know, the same thing with Brian Pillman. One of those things where you have to scratch your head and think, like, you know, if, if there's a god upstairs, he's got one hell of a sick sense of humor. Um, but, you know, it just uh, it was one of those things that when Brian's passing that you just scratched your head and found it very hard to believe. It was such a blow to the, uh, to the wrestling industry at that point, and it was shocking, to say the least, especially uh, how it occurred, when it occurred, and all that. But, Shane, when we put this to bed and we reflect upon the entire ordeal of the, uh, the CyberSlam event, as well as the, the, all the actions with Pillman, the, uh, the promos, the uh, what could have been. When fans look back at this point in time and in this part of your career, what do you want them to remember most about this you know, supposed Brian Pillman feud and this chapter of ECW? Is it the amount of uh, high-quality... Uh, wrestling that was going on on the shows itself is it the promos between you and brian is it the uh, the heat you were able to generate you know what do you think it is at the end of the day you want them to remember about this point in time well i think first and foremost to me ecw is always a team effort uh so you know whether you know the show is consistent of a lot of legends to, to, to come or you know lesser names that might be pushed to the wayside in benefit of creating that legends, the legends that would come. Uh, to me, ECW is always about a team effort. Um, the fact that I had the chance 
to work with Brian again, you know, because we had had that long run, you know, with me and Ricky Steamboat working with him and Brian, uh, him and uh, Steve Austin in WCW. And I, uh, we haven't had time to get into it tonight, but for me, that was such an extraordinary time and so much fun that I, not just me, but I think Steve and Brian both got a chance to, much like I did, learned what it meant to be a main event player. Uh, I don't think it's coincidence that coming out of that run with, with Steamboat, that all three of us would later come on, go on to be big names in the business. Uh, and because honestly, if, if you don't have the goods to deliver in the ring, then you're not going to ascend into that position. Uh, to me, and I think Steve would agree, and I'm sure if Brian were still here, he would agree, a lot of that stems right back to what we learned working with Ricky Steamboat on a night-to-night basis where we worked, you know, 45, 55, near 60 minutes every night. Um, so my takeaway of working with Brian is that much of what the franchise character became in ECW, although there were vestiges of it that came from other places, my anger, the politics of the business, that sort of thing, but how to portray that kind of a character on camera uh, I think it, there are many roots that lead right back to that angle with Brian Pillman. You know, for me, as a quote-unquote white meat babyface in his earliest days as a top heel of a company, you know, coming into this angle and seeing Brian so free willy type of portrayal of this loose cannon character uh, showed me and taught me. You know, that I, I can do whatever the fuck I want to do out here. I can go left. I can go right. I can stay right here in the center if I want to. Uh, you know, and I, without giving it more presence than I thought at the time, I have no doubt that a large part of what the franchise character became and what many of the heels in the industry became after that have their roots right in what right in the vein of what Brian Pimmel was doing in ECW and uh, alongside that with WCW and later WWF with that loose cannon character. It really was that cutting edge. It was cutting edge. It was unbelievable. And not only was Brian Pillman's role in it amazing, but Shane, you as well, because the fire that you had and the, uh, just the, the absolute uh, beauty of the whole entire angle was, uh, as a fan, you know, played to perfection. And uh, we can still reflect upon it, watch it, with uh, the same, uh, you know, eagerness to see what's going to happen next because it was just that well executed. And we will put CyberSlam 96 to bed, and we thank everybody who did contribute over the weekend and who also contributed to this poll because uh, John and I were chatting earlier today, and we think this is how we're going to go about doing these kind of special theme shows is turning it over to the listeners because you guys did a hell of a job in choosing CyberSlam 96 amongst the other choices we had and I definitely think uh, whether it's in a few weeks when we try maybe picking out a couple of uh, the top feuds that Shane's had in his career, going back to some of the moments in the cards, I think something uh, very cool will be in the works. So with that being said, if you want to contribute a question to the show, you want to ask the franchise anything, please do so by sending an email to the triple threat pod at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip, at the Franchise SD, and at the number three Threat Pod. Please, we are very interactive on there. We want to hear from everybody. So if you can, 
reach out and touch us, as they used to say uh, about the old uh, Bell, Bell Atlantic. But Shane, before we wrap it up, got to mention your Pro Wrestling Tea Store. There's a special 20% off sale running through July 4th where you can pick up the classic franchise Shane Douglas t-shirts that Shane was wearing in all his glory over the past weekend and all the great photos that were all over the uh, social media universe, uh, as well as signing some of those cool franchise Shane Douglas action figures, which you can get at WrestlingSuperstore.com. Check them out today. The, uh, the Figures, Inc. toy brand doing an amazing job of resurrecting some of your favorites including that man, the franchise, the man, the uh, the co-host extraordinaire on his Triple Threat podcast. So Shane, as we wrap up this great episode 54, we move forward to episode 55. But before we do so, where are you going to be this coming weekend doing your thing out there in the professional wrestling ring? Well, it's coming Saturday. I'm going to be up in Batavia, New York now. Pay close attention. This is an earlier show. Uh, so Batavia, New York. Uh, the show time starts uh, at 2 p.m., uh, so we'll be in town early, and uh, I'm looking forward to meeting all the fans up there and saying hello. And so, Batavia, New York, this coming Saturday uh, for an early show at 2 p.m., which is nice because I'll be able to get my, my butt back on the road and get back to Pittsburgh probably before, uh, hopefully midnight, 1 or 2 a.m., uh, not, not one of the traditional get-homes at 5 or 6 a.m., uh, but looking forward to getting back up in that direction because uh, you know, for me, upstate New York is one of those places where, uh, much like Pittsburgh and, and Knoxville this past weekend, the wrestling fans have a long history and they have a uh, understanding of the industry. So looking forward to getting to Batavia, New York this coming Saturday. You know, my apologies, that sale actually runs through July 6th. So you have two extra days to go ahead and buy your franchise shirts, which Shane, I mean, I was representing over the weekend and I can't tell you enough. You get... The compliments when people see the uh, that uh, that F emblazoned on your chest. So uh, please go ahead and pick up some franchise T-shirts. You will not be disappointed. It's prowrestlingtees.com slash franchise SD. So now, Shane, let's hand it over to you. Please take us out in only the way the franchise can on this wonderful Cyber Slam edition of the Triple Threat Podcast. Episode 54, back behind us. Now, look. After this past weekend, the world has gone right back to 1996, 97, 98. The franchise and the Queen of Extreme back together again. Where will we be next time? Will it be right down the road from you? You won't know. Make sure you check out right here to get the lowdown because this is the only place you're going to get it straight from the mouth of the franchise. Do that or get your ass franchised. <laughs>